Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bone, and joining me now, this is going to be a lot of fun, guys. I know we're kind of out of Halloween, the season's come to a close, but we're still going to talk some horror. I am talking with author Michael Harris-Cohen for his many, many, many works, but most recently, his recently released collection of, of uh, short horror stories, Effects Vary. Michael, welcome to the show. This is going to be a lot of fun, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks very much for having me on next. Of course, Appreciate it. of course. All right. So let's dive into Effects Fairy because just reading everything about it, I mean, there's so much here. You've got uh, you've got uh, uh, 22 stories, 20 of which mm -hmm. have, been, have been previously published in places, in all sorts of places, really. I want to ask first though, about the decision to collect all these together into one book. What led to this? I think it's just a, a matter of uh, accumulation. At some point, uh, you know, I gathered up so many stories over the years. I, I think maybe two, three years ago, I felt like, huh, it's probably a collection. Uh, and and then I had the the experience of sending it out to a few places and getting some really nice personal rejections, which uh, which are lovely. But <laughs> to be honest, in some ways, the personal rejections almost hurt more. You know, to know that uh, it's I mean, it's better than a form rejection, of which I've had plenty. But it's it's knowing that you're kind of close and. Um, there was actually a, a, an editor who said the, the stories are great, but in some ways uh, it doesn't quite feel like it's a complete collection. So then I think what happened is uh, I, I reached a point where, you know, I needed just a few more stories to, to, to kind of round it out. And it's not even just a matter of number of stories, but it's a kind of a, a total feel in some ways. Um, and it's a real intuition thing, you know, in terms of ordering and putting it together. But it felt like it was uh, it was complete and ready to go out in the world. And then it, you know, it finally got uh, accepted. You know, I wouldn't think too much on the order of it. But how do you decide? Because like for me, I would probably just like, oh, just put them all together. That's fine, you know. But how do you decide like the order for it? I mean, this was new to me. Uh, I'd had a, a book. It'd been a while. I mean, I'm a. I, I, I consider myself in some ways a kind of a late bloomer and I'm, I'm definitely, I'm a slow writer, you know, though I've, I've put, you know, put out a lot of stories not you know, beyond what's in this collection in the last decade. But uh, I didn't think about it so much last time because in the first book, it was a, it was, a, it was a novella. Uh, and then they actually decided to publish it and ask for a few more stories. So that was easy. Uh, this time it was, a, it was a real gut thing. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways what's interesting is uh, I, I think my analogy recalling the process was, uh, uh, was was listening to something that I heard comedians talk about, you know, in terms of how they build a set. And I think maybe it was even Louis C.K. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe he's still a controversial figure, but I'm, I'm a fan. And he said when he's developing a, a, a comic set, he 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 figures out his kind of best piece, which uh, which is his opener. And then he moves it towards the towards the end. And so then he has to have another strong piece to start. So I thought, OK, uh, I have to have a really strong opening piece that kind of sets the tone for the book. Uh, and then obviously a, a, a strong closer, too. Um, I've you know, there's it's 22 stories, but I would say maybe about a little more than a third are, are flash fiction. So I also wanted to have this kind of balance between uh, long and short. So I wanted people if they're reading a, you know, kind of a longer story. Maybe the uh, the flash piece is in some ways almost like a palate cleanser, and then I might uh, I put a few of those those together. Oh, okay. um, for me, it was a, for me it was a bit of a no brainer too in terms of thinking of which one comes towards the end because there's the longest piece in the collection is called the Court Painter, and it's uh, I mean it's it's not a novella, but I think it's probably about must be the longest about nine thousand words something like that, and I, I knew that 
that was uh, also tonally uh, still dark, but almost with a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more hope in some ways. So, but yeah, it felt uh, it felt complete. And I think I had, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Brian Evanson, and uh, he had also I had read something somewhere him talking about a, a collection and kind of looking for that, trying to put yourself in the reader's head and thinking about their journey through the book. Did you go through a number of different like orders though? When it- I did, man. I did. I got to tell you. I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the things about about writing, because I'm also I've been a, a, a teacher of writing for you know several decades, and uh, one of the things I say to students about writing is that writing is this constant series of choices, and it's not necessarily you know the the perfect choice, but in a story, but often finding kind of what the best choice is, you know, especially in revision, and. Uh, so I went through probably four or five iterations. So I would put it in a kind of an order and then leave it alone and then go back and, and, and think about it based on the table of contents and, and, and whatnot. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with this, though, how it, how it came out. I mean, I definitely I haven't heard, you know, it, issues where somebody felt like it was it was out of order. But I, I don't think most people realize, you know, how much writers drive themselves crazy with, you know, every stage of the writing process. There is so much anxiety and self-doubt. I hear it all the time. Like, oh my God, I'm awful. This is terrible. No one's ever going to read it. I've wasted my life. It, it varies. Oh man. I mean, you know, actually it's funny. In the Literally in the last class I taught uh, this week, because I have this advanced fiction workshop. And so, you know, most of the writers are slightly higher caliber. There's some real, real superstars there. And, uh, you know, I, I I did a kind of a Venn diagram on the board, something, some, probably some meme I'd seen somewhere that basically it was, you know, very simple, two circles intersecting. And on one side, you have creativity. On the other side, you have self-doubt. And this is the, this the space in the center is where art happens. I mean, at least for me and the majority of the, you know, the, the artists that I know in any medium, it's, it's never something that disappears, but you just kind of learn to, you know, to, to push past it. Honestly, I think it's better. I mean, I, I think if you're if you're writing from a place of kind of pure ego and a sort of a cocky self-confidence, I mean, uh, you know, I doubt the work's going to be very good. And I, I can't see many writers being too egotistical because I think they all start from the same place with their where they publish their first book and they probably still have boxes of it in their attic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think probably most writers are are, are in that situation. Uh I mean, I think, you know, the, the more people write uh, and, you know, a writer like, you know, a Stephen King or, you know, a Laird Barron or something, uh, I think maybe they for them, it's they just have the more kind of the the, the discipline, the workmanlike attitude. Yeah. So maybe that doesn't even enter into it. Just knowing they have to kind of throw the clay down. It's going to be a bit misshapen, but, you know, you can always rework it into, into something else. And and the more you know, the thing is, the more you go to the well. Uh, has these people who can write full time for a living, you know, you realize the more the the well actually refills. Yeah, so exactly. it, it never runs out. Plus, taste is so subjective. I mean, if you ask 10 people, what's the, what's the best movie, you're likely going to get 10 different answers. So you can't take it too hard or too personally when someone you know doesn't give you a great review on Amazon or your books don't sell too well because taste is just a weird thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm still I'm still waiting for my first bad review of this book. So far, yeah, people are really digging it, but we'll see. Maybe maybe it hasn't reached a wide enough audience. So uh, I mean I mean my 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 mother my mother's a little iffy on some of it, but she's uh she's been saying for years she she appreciates my writing, she loves it. But uh when I started moving more into genre, she said, Well, you know, you're such a good writer, but I really wish you wrote different things. So it's a little <laughs> 
Yeah. She, oh, had, she has a hard, hard, hard time with some of the content. Content, yeah. Yeah, oh, moms, moms are. It's like, oh, why can't you write something nicer or more uplifting? It's like, nope, nope, nope. Murder. Doing yeah, murder. Yeah, that's true. She she's not a big fan of the genre. Although my book, my book is actually dedicated to her because uh, the my formative years. I mean, were were those? I, I grew up in a family of bibliophiles, and those formative years were trips to the library, and that was. You know, obviously, I mean, I'm a bit older, you know, I'm 56. This is this is pre-internet. So books were the thing. You know, people in my family talked about authors the way probably other families do about sports heroes. So going to the library, and that was my dedication for her, letting me take home all the books I could carry. And, uh, you know, there that's that sort of laid the laid the groundwork, I guess. Yeah. My summers, while everyone else was going to the beach, I was I was going to the, uh, the library. Man, such a still such a magical place yeah i mean I, yeah i'm i think if i if i hadn't been a a teacher and a writer uh i think i might have been a librarian or a writer yeah i have i just it just seems like such a amazing chill job maybe it's not i mean i don't really know what it's like on the inside it's got to have its downsides but it seems like being surrounded by books all day uh you know having people come in who love books and I had a fantasy for a few years of running a small, one of those kind of boutique used bookstores, right? Because obviously these are places we love. And there was a place I used to frequent, a used bookstore. And, I, and the guy said, uh, I told him my fantasy. And he said, man, I think you better choose a different fantasy because we're we're dying. I, this was this was 25 years ago. Oh, so, geez, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's. It's weird though. I think it would actually do better now because everything is becoming so retro. Like you're seeing like records return, of course, and people are bands are making tapes of all things. I think so, and I really hope so. I mean, and that's the thing is that you know our generation. Uh, I mean, you're a bit younger than me, but you still obviously have a based on what you're surrounded with. You know, the beautiful posters and the books, and we had an appreciation for kind of the materiality of things. You know, whether it was records or even CDs, and of course books, mm-hmm. but. That's yeah. I think you're right. I think it's making a comeback, and and we'll see. It's beautiful to see the the way the LP has made a comeback. Oh yeah, definitely. Actually, like my uh, sort of like side dream is to start my own coffee shop, and it would be just like tons of books on the walls, on shelves, and you have a very like chill kind of like jazzy feel to it. But yeah, I yeah. also know that the yeah. restaurant industry is a very tough thing to break to break into. I don't have a lot of capital to start it up, so. Yeah, the same. No, I, I I get it. I get it. I have that dream, but then you 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 you. I have a few friends in the kind of restaurant, you know, coffee shop business, and you realize the reality of it is, yeah, it's a it's, like, it's an absolute labor of love. I mean, it's a. I don't really want to work eighty hours a week just to try and keep something going. Yeah, so. that's definitely not. Definitely not. I want to ask about being a writing teacher. Do you ever have students who, you know, like like they had the dream of of being like a novelist themselves? You know, there's a few. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, without kind of explaining the whole thing, but my, my teaching situation is, is, uh, is, well, I don't know how unique it is, but, uh, it's, I mean, they're undergraduates, it's an undergraduate program. Uh, and you know, when I came in, uh, right after, uh, doing a Fulbright here in Bulgaria and we, we had another kid and I thought, well, shit, how am I, how am I going to make a living? And I really lucked into this job. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great university. Uh, it had been around already for, I think about 10 years. And um, basically there was no kind of, you know, creative writing uh, teacher or program. So I started this right from the beginning. And these students, it's a liberal arts education, which means, you know, they come in and, you know, the majority of them are business majors. They're very pragmatic. 
uh, a lot of journalism majors and so on, but they have to take courses in a wide variety of fields. I mean, this is the liberal arts model, right? That ideally you you kind of have this, you know, salad bar of all these different disciplines and it makes you a more well-rounded human being. And I'm a believer in it. I really am. So uh, students were, you know, from the get-go, super excited about this course. I mean, for so many of them, it was, uh, you know, they, ne- they many of them had never had the opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, be exposed to this sort of literature and, and tell their own stories. Um, and then there's the few. There's always the few who were phenomenal and still are. And uh, and these are the readers. And some of these, they get so excited about the course that after writing a couple stories, they come to me and they say, hey, I, I have an idea for a novel, you know, and like, well, that's great, you know, uh, r- run with it. But, you know, writing a novel, is a, it's a it's a it's a long walk through the wilderness. So, uh, you know, see. But, um, you know, some have written some longer works, uh, you know, a couple have went on to MFA programs. But uh, I mean, but most of them are very pragmatic. You know, they like I said, they they come through this and I hope they keep writing. You know, I encourage them at the end of the course. You know, I said, if you get that idea in the middle of the night, you know, write it down. But uh, we'll see. I, I have a few now, too, who are just amazing. I mean, so much more talent than I had at that age. It's uh, I think part of it is the language thing, too. Most of my students speak, you know, minimum three languages. So and you, you've got students who are, oh, I don't know, when they come into college, some of them, you know, 17, 18, and you ask them their favorite book and they say, you know, Lolita or Bulgakov's Master and Margarita. And I mean, they're reading, you know, some of them are reading really serious literature at, a, at an early age. Do you ever give them like practical advice about just navigating the publishing industry? This is something I'm only starting to do now because in the intro class, uh, it's it's really not an issue so much. I mean, I run a literary magazine, The, the Fly in the Head, which is based on a Bulgarian expression, Muhavuf Blavata, Fly in the Head. And essentially what this what this means is it's a great idiom. It means you have this idea, like a fly in your brain, that won't leave you alone. So started that years ago. And for now, the, the intro students, when, when a really great story would come out, uh, I'd say, hey, you know, you want to publish in this magazine. And they're always eager. But now in this advanced class, and this is now we have a creative writing minor. This is the first time I've taught this. Uh, that's, that's a unit we're leading towards. So I'm going to break them into the reality of it. Part of their final project is to actually submit a story to a, to a market. So I said, this this will be good for you. You'll you'll likely gear up for rejection, which is, you know, it's time to start building some of those calluses on your, you know, on your soul. Uh, but, yeah, I'm going to introduce them to a submission grinder and, you know, talk about, you know, queries and how one chooses a market and, and this kind of thing. I mean, it's obviously something I know a great deal about. Uh, so it'll be very, very interesting to pass it on. Um I think when it comes to to the like rejection calluses, you you want to just like rack those things up as early as possible because eventually you're going to get to a point you just could not give a fuck. You're going to get the rejection, like be like yeah. whatever, put it on the wall, throw it in the trash, whatever. But just rack it up, man, rack it up. <laughs> this is it. This is it, man. And I, I mean, I, I'm old enough to to you know have accrued those early rejections on actual paper. You know, the kind of sending out the self addressed envelopes. You know, getting back the uh, uh, the the kind of the little note card, you know, you get the envelope in and you feel it and you're like, uh, it's not a not a contract. Yeah. <laughs> so although although I, I will say and this for better or worse encouraged me, the very first story I sent out 
which I, I eventually published later. And I thought, well, let's send it to the New Yorker. I never sent them another story since then. And I, and I got, I didn't realize what a big deal this was. I, I, I got a small post-it note, handwritten, which said, interesting voice, but I don't think it's quite there yet. So I thought, oh, okay. But again, being so clueless, I had no idea that that a handwritten rejection from the New Yorker was a was a big deal. And they were right; the story was not there. Yeah. I had to rework frame it. Frame that thing, you know. Frame it. Put it on the yeah, wall. I should. I, sh- I should have. We've moved too many times oh, no. since then. Yeah, <laughs> a lot, a lot, of, a lot of shit's been lost in the wind. I'm afraid. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, you talked earlier about uh, the more personal rejections. I'm curious about some of the if they've ever given you advice or or like ideas that actually made you a better writer. You know, honestly, it's a rare thing. I mean, uh, I think the most the most recent one I can think about, and it's for one of the stories which is in the book. It's a story uh, which is called Book of Skies. It's one of the only two stories which which had not been previously published, and uh, it, I mean, it has kind of an interesting sort of history as a story. Is that originally I was writing? I don't know if you know Joe Meinhardt. He's the the one who runs Crystal Lake Publishing. Oh, so, yeah, actually, amazing guy. Actually, I know Joe very well because we've had a number of their authors on the show. So yeah, he and I are we're we're almost besties. <laughs> he's he's just a just a, a amazing uh, you know publisher and a, you know from from what I know of him, just beautiful human being, very generous spirited. Uh, and he started oh maybe two three years ago. Uh, uh, contest for these uh, short flash fiction called uh, Shallow Waters. And I thought these were great because this, especially during the school year, I'm so busy, I hardly have time to write, but, you know, I can bust out a flash fiction, you know, a thousand words. So I had, I had you know, actually a few of the books in the story were, were written for these kind of contests. And that was one. And I think it took second place. And for sure, he was going to publish the first and he wanted to publish that one as well. And I thought, you know, uh, I'm going to hold on to it because I feel like it could be more. And indeed, I expanded it, and I think I made it a better story. So I sent it to, at one point, uh, what's it called? Weird Horror, I think. It's Michael Kelly with with Undertow. Great editor, fantastic publisher. Um, and he sent me a beautiful personal rejection, you know, and said, the story is really strong, and, you know, but I got a lot of submissions. It doesn't quite work. And I did something which, uh, which is typical. That's a personal rejection. You'll rarely get a kind of... Uh, explication of you know what what's missing and you know and it's generally considered sort of a bad form to write them back because they're so busy and the last thing you want to do is you know irritate one of these potential future publishers but uh i wrote him back and i said hey so you know i know you're busy but if you have the time i'm kind of curious uh you know what 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 do you think could be improved and he had great advice he said essentially that he said you know the ending is just it's just too damn dark, man. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's basically if you read the story, you realize they're they're fucked. Essentially, they had there's there's no way out. I mean, it's a it's a kind of a cosmic horror story. It's a full horror story, you know, about a, a this kind of lineage of the family of farmers who've had to read the signs of the sky. And all these different skies are archived in this kind of ancient book, which has been passed down from generation to generation. And there are sacrifices involved. And the ultimate sacrifice that they demand is a very high price to pay. So I don't want to spoil it. Maybe, you know, somebody will, hopefully more people will read it. Uh, And uh, he 
basically, you know, said, give them the opportunity to at least to escape this, even if there's no chance. And I thought, you know what? You're right. And uh, so that was, yeah, that was an incredible bonus. But otherwise, I've never had it with personal rejections. I've, I've only had it with editors uh, who I've worked with, who I've been lucky enough to work with, who said, this story is fantastic, but I think, you know, this, 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 and this, you know, to change. I think it's very good advice about about giving them a chance because sometimes with books or movies, you can immediately peg, okay, she's going to die, he's going to die, she's going to die, he might die, he's probably going to make it. You know, it, it becomes very, very easy, particularly if the writing isn't really strong. So I think it's good that you, if you can keep it that open. I, I mean, honestly, I'll, it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental question, I think, that a, that a horror writer is faced with when you're putting this, this protagonist through whatever their particularly awful labyrinth is, uh, is will the character survive? Will they die? If they survive, are they haunted? Uh, are they redeemed? This this kind of thing. I mean, I think, you know, I've written a lot of, you know, more experimental and more kind of realistic fiction over the years too. And these are not necessarily questions that entered into it. I mean, actually, you know, thinking about the students again, one of the things I tell them early when kind of introducing them to the idea workshop is, as I said, you students are homicidal maniacs, man. I mean, they just they just want to kill their characters. And I realized early on in the class, I know why. And the reason is, is because whether they've written stories or not, you know, we all like Joseph Campbell talks about and Carl Jung, we all kind of have this fundamental template of story. And we know in some way that uh, a character has to change by the end. Something is something has to shift, but they don't know how to do it because endings are hard you know i think it's it's for sure the hardest part of the story so what did they do they just they killed the character you know so yeah this is this is something i've uh, i've definitely struggled with but honestly it's one of the things that i love about horror is you watch a horror movie you read a good horror story or a novel you don't know you know they might make it they might wind up you know in some level of hell you know some absolutely horrific situation that's just going to leave this you know echo this residue when you finish the book you know where you're kind of trembling uh though though i love that feeling honestly that and i think are your characters characters or are they cannon fodder you know do they actually matter or are they just there to be yeah you know, bodies stacked up for the villain absolutely well i mean for me that's that's the fundamental difference between good horror and just you know the the, the crap i mean li literary horror and it's it's an amazing time for horror i mean you know, I I don't need to pay much lip service. Everybody's talked about it. We're we're in a kind of a you know a renaissance, right? Uh, but for me, you know, the the horror that I read and and what I write, uh, I mean, the characters have to have to be human beings. There has horror only works if it has this emotional core in it. You know, you you have to you have to care about the characters and. And this is why, you know, the, the the a lot of the crappy horror movies, I mean, they might be kind of fun to watch for the splatter of the gore. You can you can have this kind of ironic detachment. But for me, if I don't care about the characters, I'm I'm you know, I'm not invested. It's it's not going to hit me on that kind of deeper vibration. I mean, I'm thinking, obviously, like, I mean, film wise, you know, the like Ari Aster. Right. You know, Hereditary and, you know, Midsummer. You know, you care about these characters, even the even the ones in Midsummer that are kind of jerks. You know, it's like you feel like, Jesus, man, that's a that's a horrible fate that you have to go through. Um, or recently, I don't know if you've seen this Danish one. It's absolutely fantastic. It's called uh, Speak No Evil. Um, 
It's uh, highly recommended. I, I cannot remember the name of the director, but it was one of the last films where the, the last 20 minutes, the ending just completely floored me. And a big part of that is because, again, they, you know, they it's a it's kind of a slow burn. You know, they really, uh, really settle into it uh, at this pace that makes you makes you care for the characters. And, you, you know, something's unsettling from the beginning, but you have no idea what it is. And by the end. Yeah, it's a it's a lot. Oh, nice. Nice. One thing you mentioned about uh, the horror renaissance, I think especially, too, that we're seeing more of. And this is a good thing is a lot more horror comics especially from like indie writers, indie creators, like uh, what comes to mind immediately is a title I recently read called Sea of Sorrows, and it's all about mermaids, and uh, wow, it's intense, and I loved it. Sea of Sorrows, I'm gonna, I saw you writing down my movie, Rick, I'm going to have to write that one down, too. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. It's, it's definitely worth uh, checking uh, out. I mean, I'm a little bit out of touch with that, for sure. I uh, I know the, uh, I like the Alan Moore stuff, the... Uh, what was the Jack the Ripper one, uh, which is fantastic? And Juno Ito, the is is one of one of my one of my favorites. So CSRs, all right, yeah, definitely definitely worth checking so, out. Yeah, um, sounds good. Let's talk about these stories now. Effects vary. Uh, Twenty two stories, and you've got some amazing things here. And I'm and I'm and I'm just gonna read off for everyone a couple a, a couple of the stories. You know what you're uh, getting into. You've got. Aging TV star's murderous plan to rekindle the old glory days. A father who uh, who returns home from war forever changed. Human lab rats who die again and again and again and again. <laughs> and a farmer who obeys the commands of the sky. Damn, man. I'm sure you get this question a bunch, but where did the ideas come from? Good question. I mean, this last one is the one I was talking about, the Book of Skies. You know, uh, all kinds of different places. I would say... Uh... A number of the stories uh, were kind of triggered by anthology calls. Uh, this is this is something that really gets my juices flowing, and I think part of it, in all honesty, has to do with the deadlines. Because uh, you know, if, if you're a writer and you don't have a deadline, uh, it can be hard. You know, we're all natural born procrastinators. The only deadline basically is is death, which I, which I'm certain to meet, as are we all. But um, you know, a number of them, uh, like for example, this one with the aging film star. It's a, it's a story which is called Erasing Tony, and the the impetus for that one was there was a there was a call from uh, it's kind of I can't remember the publisher exactly. It's a, it's a sort of a writing collective or something. Very interesting group of people out of somewhere on the West Coast, I think San Francisco, and they had put out a, a, a few of these horror anthologies uh, underneath the title Black Candies. So they had a call for 80s horror. And, uh, you know, there's this crazy obsession with the 80s. Uh, you know, so many shows, you know, set in this time, Stranger Things and so on. And that got my wheels spinning. And I think, as is often the case with these anthology calls, uh, I will I will sit down and start a story and often find it's kind of stillborn. It doesn't come to life. It's not usually I'll reach a point where I where I'll know, you know what, this is this is not working kind of forcing it um and then i think you know for that one i just started thinking wow you know what's what happens to a lot of these 80s tv stars that have kind of fallen out of fashion and yet they're in the public eye because they're on youtube and uh yeah it became a very a very interesting challenging story to write in that way uh because it's a lot of cut up you know and it's one of the few stories where 
uh, I'm kind of jumping around, you know, between these these video clips. It has that sort of a weird format, uh, for, you know, formal thing where she's she's imagining an audience all the time still in her head, and also thinking about trying to kidnap the son uh, from the playground of her former co-star, who was her, and the former co-star was her son on the show. So she feels she's unbalanced. She feels like this is somebody she was close to. So at some point, I think with that story, I had to cut it up almost like a fortune cookie and, and reassemble it. Um, and then, you know, some of the short stories were inspired by those, uh, the, the shallow waters call, you know, Joe Meinhardt, as I mentioned, he would have a particular theme and that would, uh, that would get my juices flowing. Um, the one about the characters who, the, these kind of clone-like figures who die over and over and over again, uh, that was one that just came to me, who knows where. And uh, I think I had the the opening page and I knew it was good, but it's one of those things where sometimes you come up with an idea that's good. You're not sure where it's going. You love the opening line. You feel like that really is going to be the opening of the story. And you don't approach it maybe because uh, you're afraid of fucking it up in some ways. You know, you just kind of, you just kind of leave it. Uh and then I think it was a that was also it was a contest call for a magazine called Friction, which is pretty cool. I've had a couple stories with them because they they illustrate all the stories. It feels like a graphic novel, you know. It's a lot of fiction and some nonfiction and some poetry, but everything is illustrated. And they they always have one big writer. They've had Ben Piercy, Joyce Carol Oates, you know, Stephen Graham Jones has been published in there. Uh, so that was a contest, and Mercedes Yardley was judging it. And I thought, okay, this is the story, uh, and I'm gonna, you know, bust it out. And yeah, I ended up winning it. So that was, but yeah, where the where the ideas come from? I mean, honestly, I I, I have no shortage of ideas. It's just you know a matter of finitude and and time. I don't have time to write all the ideas I have. So you must have this like big notebook, just a, a chock full of all these different ideas. Man, I am drowning in notebooks and files of story ideas. And yeah, I, I, you know, I almost wish I had a clone in some ways that I could, uh, you know, chain in the living room and just make them, uh, make them write all the, all the work. But of course that, that, that always would end badly. Oh, every so. time. Yeah. I, I was going to say that could be a story actually. <laughs> the writer yeah. who clones himself so, his, so he can get more work done, but he chains the it, clone in a room, have him write all day. It never works. Yeah, yeah. You you got you have to put the hours in. You have you have to do the work. So, we'll see. We'll see when I get them all, all done. Like, Cole Michael, get to work, please. No, I, I'm tired. <laughs> exactly. Work, damn you. <laughs> yeah, for sure they're gonna rebel. They're gonna escape, take over my life, and then no, I'm not the clone. I'm the real Michael. Exactly. Yeah. And then you die. That's how it always goes. Every single mm-hmm. time. Yeah, we, yeah, exactly. That's that's why it's good that we look, we, we we you know ingest a lot of horror, so we learn what not to do, so what lines not to cross. Yeah, every time we see any kind of advancement in robotics, I think, guys, stop. We know where this ends. It, it's amazing. I mean, I, I have this kind of dual feeling towards the technology and the research. You know, part of me is fascinated, and part of me is completely apocalyptic. Like, you know, you're really edging towards the singularity. It's like, are we sure we, you know, we want to do this? I, remember, uh, I can recall reading one story, and it was about a robot that was able to more or less learn from previous experiences. I thought, guys, what the hell? Don't give it a gun, yeah. Jesus. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's something that drives us, you know, as humans, you know, this, this, this pursuit of knowledge for better or worse, we, we want to see things through to the end. I get it. You know, if you're, you know, some, some, you know, uh, artificial intelligence programmer, you know, genius guy, you, you wanted to take it as far as you can, but we'll see. I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because in some ways you wonder like, okay, how much of this is the sort of the, the jet pack and the flying car of our era? I mean, this is a lot of the, you know, William Gibson has this great story. I think it's called the Gernsback Continuum in it. And it has all this, uh, uh, these kind of these, these echo images of this projected uh, future that never happens. And, and it's all very familiar. You know, these kind of cities you'd see in the old sci-fi covers, the, the jet packs, the flying cars. I mean, this, you know, this shit didn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll see. We all imagine what, you know, you know, technology develops at a kind of an exponential rate that we're, you know, within within 10 years, people have serial ports in their head and, and so on. The, the Elon Musk chip. And but I think it's it's usually it, it somehow it, def, it defies our expectation. I mean, I don't think anybody could have, you know, sort of predicted what exactly the Internet would be or, or Twitter, for that matter. Ugh. What Whatever, whatever, whatever Twitter is now. Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. All right. Let's uh, let's get back to talking about the stories. Now, I read sure. that you deal with a lot of uh, different themes, including love, loss, and family. Why these? You know, uh, uh, it's not something I, I consciously start out with. I think my usual starting point is uh, is is character uh, or situation. You know, something that kind of intrigues me and. Uh, it's in some ways this is more you know I mean because this is a, a a little bit what you're what you're talking about is kind is kind of ad copy that that I designed because it's a you know as an indie guy I don't have a publicist but um but it's it's you know talking about looking at the collection as a whole and having that kind of distance to see it for what it is one of the things that I realized is that every story regardless of the topic the theme the setting you know whether it you know, it's kind of cosmic horror, more folk horror, or if it has even like this this one with the clones graduating, which has a kind of a sci-fi bent, uh, it's really about family, you know? Um, so it's obviously, I mean, I, I you know, to be honest, and I, I don't mean to be, you know, kind of glib or cagey, I think it's one of those things that I haven't, I haven't examined so much in the same way that I think for most writers, probably, at least from my perspective, I don't think going through intensive Freudian or Jungian or Lacanian psychoanalysis is necessarily beneficial for you as an artist, maybe as a human being, right? I mean, nobody said as an artist, you're necessarily uh, a happy person, <laughs> though, ge though generally I am. But that's, that's kind of where you work out your stuff. It seems to come up a lot. There's a lot of, you know, mother-child relationship. There's a, uh, there's a lot of actually i didn't even realize it till a reviewer a, a review, reviewer recently uh loved the book at least that was my impression for the book it was a very positive review, review but she rated it a little bit lower this kind of seven out of ten whatever her system was and she said in the review she said well uh people are probably wondering why i didn't give this a higher score but the truth is there's a lot of child death which uh, which is triggering. And of course, I mean, you know, in horror, almost anything goes. But there are a few areas where, you know, publishers often discourage. I mean, and for obvious reasons, you know, what sexual violence and rape and those are not things I, I deal with in my work. 
uh, but child deaths and uh, and you know an animal deaths. And I realized, shit, she's right, man. A lot of you know, there's a lot of kids uh, who are put in harm's way, or so. I mean, not every story. So but I guess this is sort of a trigger warning to, you know, to the audience, whoever they may be, because I did an issue with one. I mean, and this is this is kind of a touchy subject, too, uh, but an interesting one. I think I I personally I understand I understand them. I'm not a fan of them. I mean, for me personally, I'm never going to read a trigger warning for a book because for me, it's a kind of a spoiler. I don't I don't want to know those things. And um, and I don't mind, you know, maybe I don't have so many triggers, but I, I kind of. I like to push those buttons. And then it's interesting for me to see, you know, maybe think about after the fact why why I felt this kind of discomfort and, and, and so on. I mean, that's what I come to, to, to horror for, one of the reasons. You know, it's for, for me with short stories, it's really kind of story by story. But I will say, I mean, even this, this uh, I'm working on a longer piece. I mean, it's again, another, probably my, my I've written three novels, but they're all, they're all trunked, okay? Uh, they're all maybe, you know, some of them I'll resurrect. And, and part of it is just because, you know, I have no problem putting down the words and writing, you know, one of them's 120,000 words. Uh, a lot of good writing, a lot of interesting ideas. But then I kind of move on. It's between maybe being a parent, being a teacher, you know, another short story anthology call coming up. And then I kind of get distracted and I, I don't go back. But but this new one, we'll see. feels pretty good. It seems to be my white whale. The novel, you know, the, the the longer work. I can write it, but then to to shape it into something good. Maybe my expectations are quite high too. I wanna I don't want to put out a novel in the world that's mediocre. I want to put out something that I feel is at least solid, good. So uh, but this one again deals with uh, you know, kind of child death and disappearance. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you know, I'm 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 working through some stuff. Who knows? My parents divorced when I was young. I mean, you know, my father died when I was what, 20? So but uh, yeah, I guess I guess these are. I, I'll, I'll give a fuller answer to my to my psychoanalyst if I ever have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I think that a trigger warning. I mean, it is nice to do, but number one, it's horror. If if you're reading horror and you have issues with like the gore, the death, you're kind of missing the point of the genre. Secondly, I don't want the spoiler. I I, I want to be surprised and shocked and terrified. Not oh well, I totally saw it coming because it was right there on the cover of the book. That's my feeling. I mean, that's exactly how I feel. And uh, I mean, I was I was very respectful about this review. I, I thought it was great, and you know, and and I I don't mind some criticism and so on. I thought, yeah, this is something to think about. Maybe maybe there should have been in one one in there. I don't know. And and then I think on somewhere on social media, but not where I knew her on Facebook. I, I issued one, which was sincere though. It sounded uh, a little bit, a little bit wise ass. And I said that, yeah, it's true. A, a, a slew of people die in this. Uh, a number of them are kids, uh, one horse and a squirrel. <laughs> not the squirrel, Which, you monster. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's the first story. There's a, there's, there's squirrel death. There's, there's squirrel death of this piece. So, but where, where I, you know, spent most of my life in Wisconsin, those, those fuckers are ubiquitous. You know, there's Seriously. no, there's no shortage of squirrels. We have a squirrel that is actually kind of nibbling on our front porch. So, so I, I might actually appreciate that story. Like, yeah, fuck that squirrel. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe it's going to be cathartic for you. Exactly. So you'd be like, yeah, you know. Or it gives me yeah, ideas. He's a, he's, 
Well, he's a very minor character. Yeah, he has no he has no lines. You don't have too much time to get attached to him. But uh, well, yeah, that, he dies. He dies uh, strangely. There we go. All right. Now, for all the work that was previously published, did you do any kind of edits or updates before this collection was put out? You know, not much because honestly, uh, I'm a I'm a compulsive reviser. Uh, I it took me, and I think this is one of the lessons that sort of you know, separates the wheat from the chaff and the, in the writers. And I'm hoping the chaff, I'm the chaff. Sometimes I am. Uh, and that is realizing that, uh, a story has to go through most stories, not all, but, uh, usually a story has to go through 10, 12, 15 revisions. Um, I mean, I think three, four of these stories have been published in the dark, you know, with Sean Wallace and Sylvia Miranda Garcia when she was there. Um, so they've been, they've been ruthlessly uh, revised. The The only thing was, I mean, I did read back through for sure. Uh, and amazingly, uh, you know, there were a few gaffes, a few errors in there too, which, which, which shocked me after all, all the time I'd been through them. And then the editor, it's, it's amazing. what will sort of, you know, elude the editorial eye. Uh, I think my final editorial process was uh was sending this the, the the finished manuscript after cemetery gates media was just about ready to pull the trigger with it and i said uh i said let me let me send it to my brother who's a translator who lives in greenland and he's just a super annoying pedantic uh grammarian so he he went through with his fine tooth comb and you know but he he caught a few things and uh and there was a number of other things where uh he's not a writer so there's some things where he's like, this the syntax of the sentence is odd. And I said, Yeah, man, it's you know, it's literary. You know, it's it reads reads better this way. But um honestly, for me, part of the part of the pleasure of publishing is not just uh knowing that I'm gonna communicate it to the world that ideally people who not just people I know, but you know, people I don't know are gonna read this and hopefully dig it, is that uh I'm done with it. I never have to revise this story again. You know, because, uh, you know, you can you can just work it and work it and work it. I mean, I, I've had different stories, too, not ones in this collection that I think I've I've worked to death. I've embalmed them, essentially, essentially. They read perfect, but they're kind of, you know, they're they're almost lifeless in a way. Mm-hmm. So nice. All right. Let's talk covers, because for me, a cover of a book is a make or break thing. I know what they say. Don't judge a book by, by its cover, but you do. And the cover you have is really cool. It's this like pharmaceutical kind of uh, theme here. Who's the artist behind it, and how did you guys get together? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, this was this this is Matthew Rever. Uh, I always thought it was uh, Matthew Revert, but I think I was I was listening to a podcast recently. Uh, who was it? I think it was Philip Fercasi. He has this podcast, The Dark Word. I'm sure you probably heard it. It's been around for a while, so it's great. I mean. Uh, and he mentioned the name. So anyway, Matthew Revert, he's Australian. And uh, I've been a huge fan of his work. I mean, he's done um, amazing stuff. His uh, I highly encourage people to check out just his website if you haven't. Uh, you know, he's been doing indie horror and indie books for, you know, quite a while now. And a whole variety of other, you know, kind of weird album art and, and whatnot. Uh, so I'm I completely agree. I mean, this, you know, the, the old the old adage of you don't judge a book by its cover. It's a great one when it comes to people, but it but it ain't true for books anymore. Pure, period. You know, I mean, I think it's it's crucial. It's vital. And, uh, you know, for my first book, 
I was very lucky because uh, this was a tiny publisher. I mean, they're defunct now. And they started off, but, you know, they had, it's interesting, they had great connections. You know, they were publishing Evanson. Uh, the person who, you know, selected my novella was Stephen Grant Jones. He was not a big name yet, but they had a, they had one issue completely devoted to him where he's writing in several different genres, including a graphic novel. And, and then the person who judged the, the next contest was Paul Tremblay. So they were kind of, you know, prescient in some ways about these things. Anyway, the one who designed that cover, I, I was friends with uh, a professional book cover designer. So that one was great. With this one, I knew I wanted a rubber cover. And originally when the story collection was accepted, it was actually accepted at Off Limits with uh, Samantha Kolsnick. And she's, I'm sure you know her, marvelous writer, uh, amazing to work with. Uh, and I said, look, I, you know, I'll pay for it if you want. You know, it's indie, I know. And she said, no, no, no. I'm never going to have a, you know, a, an author pay for the the cover. So I contacted Matthew as, you know, his schedule was clear. He It was my idea. He liked it a lot. He did an iteration of it, which honestly, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm just a picky motherfucker. I said, look, man, this is, I want, I really want the, this, this bottle on the cover to have this sense of kind of materiality to really feel like a picture of an actual bottle, not just to be a sort of flat two-dimensional representation. And to his credit, uh, he worked with me over the course of, you know, on and off for the course of maybe six weeks. And at the end of the whole process, I said, so am I the, the most anal person you've ever worked with? And he, he said, well, he said, you're not the most anal. He said, but you're a really nice guy. And I liked, I liked the project. So, I mean, it was an interesting process. And part of it, too, when I was thinking about it, is that it's very different coming up with a cover for uh, a collection of short stories versus a novel. Because a novel is really of a piece. It's about one thing, right? Okay, it's about many things, but you know it encompasses a single story, albeit long. And with this one, I thought, well, damn, I mean, what what is a cover that kind of captures all these stories? So you have to think, of course, what's your title story, which I had submitted it as. So I thought, okay, I'm kind of locked in with this effects fairy. It's an interesting, unusual title. And then I thought, okay, well, yeah medicine bottle and the labels and so on and yeah i mean you know rever uh he he dug the idea right away he got it and uh yeah that's how it came out i'm real i'm super happy with it honestly i mean you know that feeling you know we were talking a little before the podcast holding a, your book in your hands and um yeah it's it, and it's an unusual cover it's interesting when i see it some reviewers i've sent it out they'll do this kind of uh what do they call it? Like a book haul where they have a bunch of books that they have that have come in that they're going to read and review eventually. And I see it side by side with the other covers and it's, it, it, it pops. And it's, you know, what I did not want is I didn't want this kind of the skulls and the kind of the, all the cliche shit that we see. And, you know, honestly, I've seen, you know, horror covers that for good books that just don't work for me. You know, I don't want to mention them by name, but um, yeah, it's it's and it's very strange to me. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a, it's an incredibly subjective choice, but there there are some that just feel either cliche, over the top, or just aesthetically they don't they don't move me, and it's and it's so crucial. Um, and there's so many good cover artists now. You know, this 
Matthew Rever. I mean, I don't know if you know Don Noble, uh, who's who's done a lot of stuff. He did Haley Piper's, you know, Queen of Teeth. He's done a lot of other covers. He's he's fantastic. Um, I mean, he would have been my second choice, I think. But but yeah, it's a you know, thanks. I think it, I think it's a strong cover, and it and it encompasses the book nicely. Mm, definitely. All right. Uh, we are coming to the close here, folks. But of course, we're going to ask the big question, the one that you're all probably wondering: What's next? Okay. Well, good question. No, I mean, I, I have a few stories which are uh, hopefully coming out in the in the next year, and then uh, it's hopefully this big work, which uh, I mean, the uh, the the working title is the healing. But uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm not entirely happy with it, but but we'll see. Titles, titles often uh, I'll change, you know, two, three, four times. Um, and it's a kind of a it's a kind of a gothic novel. And I would say when it comes to uh, there's so many subgenres of horror, but it's a it's a work of kind of grief horror. Because it's it's about it's about a mother whose uh, uh, son has disappeared. So as a as a parent, and uh, and maybe that's you know honestly where where some of this kind of fixation on you know the the the, the child stuff in my stories comes from is you know I have two daughters now I'm a grandfather too I have a a grandchild who's adorable and uh, you know when you're a parent this is the worst case, you know, anything happening to your child, you know, you're destroyed. So, uh, this is basically the, the, the start of the book is that this child has, has been gone for a year and she's sort of postponed it and been, you know, uh, going through all the channels to find them. And there's a service which is held. This is the opening of the book. And, uh, she has a total meltdown. And it's, you know, from there, it's uh, the story of what what has happened to the child and at the same time her kind of healing through this very dark sort of network of, you know, what happens to these these children. Uh, this is what I've been working on. So we'll see. We'll see when it's when it's done. I mean, I. You know, I've written a, a kind of a rough draft. I think this is one that I'm going to I'm going to stick with and and see see through to the end and uh, and hopefully publish. So that so that's that's what's next up for uh, for me. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. And the folks at home, you know what to do. It's Michael Harris Cohen, C-O-H-E-N dot net. You'll find everything there. Follow his socials. Leave reviews. I'll keep saying it because it's very important. All this interaction. It's what's required for these authors to just get better and rise up and become more well-known. Absolutely. Thank you, Max. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's so true, especially for us indie authors. You know, uh, every, every, every review helps, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, and doing this kind of thing. I, I've, I've enjoyed this, Max. It's been great talking to you. Hey, guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on. And that brings this episode to a close. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check this show out wherever you find your favorite podcast, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now. 
and I'll see you next time.